1: All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. The last time we spoke to Professor Nancy Piercy on the Adult in the Room podcast, it was for a special two part podcast on her book, Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. And now, once again, she's issued a new book, and it is perfectly timed for what's going on in the cultural zeitgeist. So as far as our previous podcast editions, I want you to go back and and listen to those two podcasts with Nancy Piercy. Those are audio only, and to to get a backgrounder on some of the big issues of the day, you'll want to do that now. Some of the things that we talked about during that podcast and things that she's subsequently worked on are, you know, basically an understanding of the issues of the day from the quick onset of the, uh, social contagion about trans, whatever we're calling it, social contagion, trans, transsexuality to, uh, how literal law of the land disconnects humans and us from our literal bodies so that the state can move in to determine what a person is, what motherhood is, what parenthood is. It arrogates all authority to itself, as it always does. There's an old, old fashioned uh, big fire and brimstone message from the pulpit from back in the old days, and it's called Fire Always Makes Room for Itself, and So Do Bad Actors and Evildoers. Now, some men and women prefer government to God. It kind of is set up that way and uh, set about to organize us in the image of government, leaving us to the the vicissitudes, the whims of feelings, not the image of God and intellectual heft and duty and respect. Forces of the world have led to the deconstruction of our very beings, of what makes us who we are. Uh, we are made in the image of God. Some people don't know that, but if you don't, that's okay. This is totally applicable and, and approaches your knowledge base where you are. So you will be informed about what that means. What makes us human now in the world is commoditized. It's packaged as a product that's sold exclusively by the state. Nancy Piercy rejects this and explains this oversimplification and looks piece by piece at the cultural and biblical implications of why we are who we are and how we meet the world. Why this current confusion about gender, about all sorts of things, this chaos is chaff, which blinds us to the real picture, who we really are and in whose image we are. She does it in her new book, again, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Now, besides her new Toxic War on Masculinity book and her Love Thy Body books, her earlier works include The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, How Now Shall We Live? She co-authored this with Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson, yes, Chuck Colson, and Total Truth. Her books have been translated into 19 languages. She is professor and scholar in residence at the Houston Christian University. A former agnostic, Piercy has spoken at universities such as Princeton and Stanford, USC and Dartmouth. If she can still, can I wonder if she, I'm going to ask her, can you still speak there? She has been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. Wow. Nancy Piercy, thanks for coming on this podcast. and Welcome <laughs> back to the Adult in the Room podcast.
2: Hey, it's good to be here. It's good to see you again.
1: Oh, it's great to see you. Why is the world telling us to hate men.
2: Yes, that's the question I take on (laughs) in my new book, you know, The Toxic War on Masculinity. And that's what I was trying to answer. Where did this even come from? Where did the idea come from that masculinity is toxic? I was looking at headlines like the Washington Post had an article called, Why Can't We Hate Men? You know, not, not some fringe feminist publication, but a mainstream publication like the Washington Post. Or um, the Huffington Post, the editor tweeted that her New Year's resolution was "kill all men." Uh, That you can buy T-shirts that say "so many men, so little
1: ammunition." (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I'm not supposed to laugh, but that's kind of funny. (laughs) But you couldn't have that same T-shirt about a woman, exactly? Could you?
2: Exactly. That is the point. And and speaking of which, there are books out now with titles like I Hate Men and No Good Men and Are Men Necessary? And and again, you could never say this about women. So this is what started me on the journey of writing this book. I thought, where is this coming from? And, you know, Victoria, even men, even men are denigrating their own sex. This surprised me, but you probably saw this. It was just a few months ago now when um, the director of Avatar, James Cameron, was quoted saying, uh, testosterone is a toxin. It's a toxin that you have to work out of your system. And uh, and, and even a um, a science fiction writer who's a best-selling writer, Hugh, uh, Hugh Howey is his name, and he says, testosterone is the problem. Women should be in charge of everything. Or another, a book came out by a man saying uh talking talking about talk uh, excuse me, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. And so I thought this level of this level of hostility has got to be coming from somewhere, you know, and we we're not going to really counter it effectively if we don't st- say, well, where's it coming from? How did it develop? How can we sp- respond to it? And especially since men are actually doing worse today. You know, uh, this was, I have two sons, and so this this really hits home for me. The boys are falling behind at all levels, all levels of education, you know, from, from elementary school to college. You know, colleges are, are mostly like 60% women and 40% male today.
1: Yes, and men aren't going in They're some cases. Going.
2: They're not graduating. Uh, graduate school, more women than men are attending graduate school, uh, even professional schools like law school and veterinary school, more women than men. So men are actually falling behind. They're more likely to commit suicide. They're more likely to be drug addicted. They're more likely to be homeless. Uh, They commit crime, and they're victims of crime more often than women. I used to work for a, a prison. It's called Prison Fellowship. It's a ministry to prisoners and we knew, we knew. You know, eighty to ninety percent of all, especially violent prisoners, are all male. In fact, male um, life expectancy has gone down in recent years. Women's have stayed the same, but male life expectancy has gone down. So there was a, a scientific magazine that said the biggest uh, demographic threat for early death now is being male. So th- this is kind of the problem. Where does this come from and how can we respond to it
1: effectively? I was just looking, uh, did the Google machine today, Google on purpose. And here are some of the search results for toxic masculinity. Um, The rise of the sigma male, a new kind of toxic masculinity. So be looking for that one, Nancy, if you haven't seen that yet. I'd never heard of it. Half the stuff I've never heard of. Uh, Bud Light fans' backlash over Dil- Dylan Mulvaney shows toxic masculinity. So what does it mean when I recoil at that? Toxic masculinity. What does it mean? Where did it come from? And is the term useful or harmful? <laughs> I don't know. Jump ball, apparently. Toxic masculinity is not a useful description. I think, uh, Professor Piercy might go along with that one. Here's one. Um, oh, is toxic masculinity causing cycling deaths? I mean, toxic, toxic masculinity is a harmful myth how does toxic masculinity play out on our roads and how do we stop at another one on the bicycles? Probably also, you get the picture. I mean, they're, they're inserting it. It's sort of like the old game they played with, with global warming and getting grants from the U S government. If you want to find out why uh, pencils are made the way they're, they're made, I don't know, but, but now you have to do well, okay. Now how does global warming impact the way pencils are made to get the grant? Because that's all they're offering grants for. And toxic masculinity is, uh, what everyone apparently wants to adhere to, that whole idea that men are bad. So people write articles about how bad men are.
2: Well, in my book, uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity, I start with the good news. (laughs) (laughs) I figure people need the good news first. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I I look at, uh, the subtitle is, you know, how Christianity reconciles the sexes. And uh, as you probably know, it talks, toxic masculinity is applied especially to Christian men right? and anyone who believes in some sort of uh, male authority or headship in the home is said to be especially toxic. When I was uh, re- writing the book, it was really easy it, easy to find quotes about that. Let me give you a few quotes on, on that one. Um, I'll read some of these so you get the exact words conservative protestant gender ideology can clearly lead to abuse both physical and emotional it's no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches with who that embrace headship theory and and get this one the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating american christianity today and the problem with these accusations is they overlook the data from the social sciences, it turns out the sociologists have been looking at Christian men and Christian couples for the last few decades, partly because of these accusations. They've been saying, okay, well, where's the empirical evidence? <laughs> it's easy to make accusations, but where's the evidence? And in fact, studies have found, and this is the good news that I start with in my book, studies have found that evangelical family men... By that, they mean, you know, men who are married and have kids and who attend church regularly are actually the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers of any group in America. So compared to the average American family man, evangelical men uh, spend more more time with their kids, uh, both in positive activities like reading with them or um, taking them to sports or being part of a church youth group, whatever. But also in discipline, in setting bedtime, setting limits on screen time, and so on. Making sure they do their homework. So they're, they're the most engaged fathers of any group in America. They're the most loving husbands. And by the way, they do test the wives separately, which is important.
1: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because some women wouldn't talk openly if their husband was right next to them. So this, yeah. is, this is asking women, uh, surveying the women separately. And the wives of evangelical men test out as the happiest with their husbands' expressions of love and affirmation and appreciation. Uh, Evangelical couples are the least likely to divorce. And and here's the real stunner. They have the lowest level of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America. So it's just a big old fat lie. So even even most Christians don't know this. Right. Uh-huh. No, th- this is news. The, the trouble, Victoria, is this is all hidden away in the academic literature. This is one reason I write the book. Mm. It's in the academic literature. Nobody's talking about it. So I went to the academic literature and pulled it out and said, "Guys, look at this. You can't really. Do- you can't continue to badmouth Christians because they actually are testing out as the best." Let me give you a cool quote on this, by the way. So this is um, a sociologist who's considered one of the top or maybe even the top marriage researcher in America. His name is Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia, the founder of the Institute of Family Studies there. And when I see uh, leading sociologist, he's the kind of guy who gets published in the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on. And he said this in the New York Times, uh, and this is a direct quote. It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives by the way, the reason they talk about wives is, of course, because, you know, the, the assumption is that religious conservatism leads to um, men who are overbearing patriarchs, you know, who are oppressive to their wives, who silence their wives, who are abusive and so on. So they do test the wives. The happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives, fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. So Brad Wilcox is explaining this to his secular colleagues, right, who, who can't quite figure out why it is that going to church actually benefits people. It, it's almost <laughs> funny watching him trying to explain this. <laughs> well, actually, um, I, I had a secular friend who said, who said, well, maybe it's self-selection. Maybe it's not church that helps people. Maybe it's that good guys are attracted to church. Which only begs the question, well, then what is it about church that, that attracts good guys? <laughs> but, but Bill Wilcox puts it this way. He, sa- he says to his secular colleagues, uh, look, you need to cast aside your prejudices. These, these are his words. You need to cast aside your prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. He said, it's a church where you find a message to men that their family is important. It's not a product of evolution. It's not a social construct. It's something created by God. And you have an obligation to God for how you treat your wife and kids. Um, and at, at church, you're going to find people who, who care about the same things you do. You're not going to find it at work. You're not going to find it in the sports stadium. Uh, you're not going to find it at the local tavern, for sure. So it is in church where men actually get messages that they should focus on their family. And he says... Uh, and listen to this. His final quote is this: Theologically conservative Protestant family men are consistently the most active and expressive fathers, and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So this is the bottom line. This is a, this is like I said from 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 the social sciences. This is not somebody just trying to puff up their own group. This is actually rigorous data, you know, from the social from the scientific evidence. So it's amazing that he got this published in the New York Times, right? But what he's saying, you know, of course, they're interviewing the wives, especially, right? Because supposedly traditional, uh, c- uh, especially religious marriages, are, se- are said to be oppressive to women, sure. and so that's why he he phrases it in terms of, well, actually, the women mm-hmm. are testing out as the 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 happiest wives in America. So wow. not even Christians know this information. It's it's amazing. This information is, is, is hidden away in the academic literature. Sociologists and psychologists are writing articles on this and doing studies, but it's not getting out into the general public. And that's one reason I wanted to write this book is to help people realize actually Christians are doing very well in this area and that Christianity does have the resources to address toxic behavior in men when it does appear. We, and we should be confident about bringing it into the public square because it's been it has rigorous empirical testing
1: behind it. Well, I think that the left has glommed on. Don't think I know that the left has glommed on to religious beliefs as as uh, something negative And which that comes from duh dot com. But I noticed it especially recently as I was working on a piece for PJ Media about the um, Supreme Court. And how they've attacked the Supreme, they, the left, have attacked the Supreme Court justices. And I went back into the Ruth Santas, um, Twitter timeline. I went back over a year and I kept seeing referred to this, this phenomenon, Christo fascism. They kept calling religious beliefs practiced by all, almost all of the, uh, justices as Christo fas- fascism, and especially Amy Coney Bryant, because she's a woman and she and her husband belong to an organization that t- that uplifts marriages and helps people minister to those on the outside of their family unit. Right. So uh and outside the church. And I just felt like, you know, this really is a battle of good and evil. And whether or not you believe in Christianity, whether or not you believe in the up, the what upholds the United States of America in terms of values and, and moral responsibility of its citizens. You can't deny that these guys hate, they really hate Christianity, period. Let me, let me explain where some of that misconception comes from. So
2: even in Christian circles, it is often said that Christians divorce at the same level as the rest of society. And when I was researching this, I found that this was one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. Well, it turns out it's totally false, but there's a reason, there's a reason they have this misconception. They would, The researchers went back to the data, and they separated out Christian men who are actually, actually committed, who actually attend church regularly, have an authentic uh, Christian conviction, some nominal Christians. Nominal, my, I have to explain this to my students. They don't know the word nominal. <laughs> nominal means in name only. Nam is Latin for name. So in other words, these are guys who maybe hang around the edges of the Christian world, who maybe uh, check Baptist on a survey box because of their family background and their culture, but who don't really have a, f- a strong personal commitment. And what they found was stunning. It turns out that the differences between these two groups are striking. Nominal Christian men are the least engaged with their children. They're the least loving with their wives. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They are actually the most likely to divorce, more likely than secular men. And here's the real shocker. They have the highest level of domestic violence, even higher than secular men. So this is why the statistics are so skewed. If you simply do a study of Christian men, say, you know, or or even evangelical Christian men, you put these two groups together, you're going to get the wrong outcome. The statistics will be, will be misinterpreted. So this is why there's such a, a difference of, uh, you know, the the public presentation of Christianity. Why we're missing the data is because they're not making this careful selection. If they focus just on truly committed Christian men, they test out the best. But if they focus on nominal Christian men, they test out the worst. So this is one of the most surprising findings and I would say one of the things we need to be aware of, uh, in, uh, say in the Christian world, like uh, you, you mentioned, Connie uh, Barrett, this is what Christian churches need to pay attention to: is that you know these nominal Christians are messing up our reputation. <laughs> but we need to re- we need to reach out to them because what they're doing is they're taking religious language like the husband is the head of the home, uh, headship and submission, but they're infusing secular definitions of dominance and entitlement into those biblical terms and not understanding the biblical meaning of those
1: terms. You know, when you talk about the uh role of women for example in the early church in your book love thy body and how incredibly liberating Christianity was for that group of people and how it um held them up and uh gave them worth as it did with children this is one of your tenets that, that people really do not understand about the church in general so to get a message of um a family a devotion Respect, mutual respect, I suppose, is not exactly something that you would be surprised to find in church.
2: <laughs> exactly, and I want to go back to how you started this program when you talked about be- being made in God's image. You know, the other side of it is that even even people who don't necessarily have a church background are made in God's image. There was a um, that again another sociological study, but uh, by a guy who's uh, sociologist is not a Christian. But he's he's a very prominent sociologist, so he gets invited to speak all around the world. And he said he came up with two questions which he asks young men. Uh, You know, from Australia to Ecuador to India, he says. uh, First of all, he asked them, "What does it mean to be a good man?" You know, if you are at a funeral and in the eulogy they say he was a good man, what does that mean? And he said, all around the world, people know what that means. The men have no problem answering. Um, And I'm going to give you, again, a direct quote, honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy, (laughs) kind of like that one, stand up for the little guy, be a provider, be a protector, be generous, give to others. And he he says to them, where did you learn that? And they would say, well, it's everywhere. It's in the air we breathe. And if they were in the West, they would say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. So then he would follow up with a second question. And he'd say, okay, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And they'd say, oh, no, that's completely different. That means, and I'm using their words again, be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get laid. In other words, some of the things that we do associate with toxic versions of masculinity and what what I conclude from that is that men around the world, they're made in God's image. And so they do know what it means to be a good man. Um, but they're feeling the cultural pressure to be w- the real man. In other words, some of the more negative traits of, of masculinity are embedded in a lot of our cultural messages. The, you know, the secular script for masculinity often does have those kind of uh, more... Much more negative or harmful views of of masculinity, and so this this I, I put this right at the front of my book because this kind of disarmed people. You know, when people heard I was writing on masculinity, you know, what that first question was: Whose side is she on? You know, just immediately, whose side is she on? You know, is she some raving feminist who's who's male bashing, or is she some reactionary conservative you know, who's going to defend men at all costs? And by putting this survey at the beginning, I could show that, Look, we're, no, we're not going to have to wholesale either attack or defend. We're going to defend the good man because men are made in God's image. And around the world, they do have an understanding of what it means to be the good man. In fact, let me give you another study. This was by an anthropologist. Uh, it came out a few years ago. And it was the first ever study done by, um, uh, across the world, across all kinds of different cultures. And no matter what their view of masculinity was, you know, whether it was more tough, whether it's more gentle... All cultures share what this anthropologist called the three Ps. The three Ps provide, protect, and procreate. In other words, have you know, raise a, raise a family. So people are made, like you said at the beginning, people are made in God's image. They do understand what it means to be a good man to to f- to fulfill the three Ps. And so, in some ways, the the uh, debate is not so much between men and women. The debate is within men's own heads between these two conflicting scripts for what it means to be a man.
1: Are those other things that you say aren't necessarily, like, it's just a man up, man, uh, those things aren't necessarily negative, are they? Or are yes, they?
2: Exactly. Um, and, and I do say that, too. I'm careful in my mm-hmm. book to say those are not necessarily bad things. In a crisis, mm-hmm. you want someone who can be strong. Whether it's a man or a woman, you know, we mm-hmm. have to be strong in a crisis and not crumble and not get emotional. But that's meant to be a temporary strategy. <laughs> yes. It's not meant to be a way of life.
1: Exigent circumstances.
2: Exactly. So we want men who can be both, right, who can be tough and tender, you know, who can be caring and courageous. So we want we want people to show the entire image of God. Mm -hmm. both both sides and that's what we need that's the message that we need to get across to men is you know what does it mean to be a whole person made in god's image
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: You know, the, you, you talk about the, the shooter at a um, California nightclub. And you talk about that person being a man. And then the heroism displayed by men in that same place, and how this differentiates between sinful, bad man, uh, uh, poison, and what makes men best and uh, the, the you know brings out the best in a person.
2: Yes, it was such an interesting opening story because it was a shooter at a nightclub, and so he was a, sh- a shooter who had in, a, in essence represented all all the negative qualities that we associate with the word toxic. Um, and and then a young man, a college age student, who helped um, evacuate many of the people in the nightclub, lead them to safety. And I said, you know, here's the two versions of masculinity. The American Psychological Association put out a guideline recently, um, right before my book came out, on how to deal with. Masculinity, you know, with with male clients, you know, it's American Psychological Association says addressing psychologists and and it treated masculinity, what it called traditional masculinity, it treated as purely negative, purely toxic, something that was harmful. I thought those are horrible. (laughs) It was a horrible set of guidelines because it was purely negative. Treat your patients this
1: way. treat them as if they're really ill.
2: Exactly. Yeah, as if masculinity itself is a problem. Of course, if that is a problem, uh, you, the the solution seems to be emasculization, right? And so seems to be working. And, and they paid no attention to the fact that it also takes masculine strength and courage to stand against the shooters, you know, to stand against the people who are committing violence. That's just as much a part of the picture of masculinity. And they were giving a completely one-sided view. And that that coming from the APA you know, that was extremely harmful I think even Jordan Peterson really took them to task for that for those guidelines and they backtracked by the way they had such negative uh, feedback that they had to backtrack and say, well we didn't exactly mean it that way but they did of course they did. <laughs> yes they did of course they
1: did <laughs> well they're trying to deconstruct what masculine what men are and why is that well I think it here's here's my take on that
2: American culture has has two streams, you know, like like the uh, like that sociologist found. Uh, American culture, in particular, does have the Judeo Christian heritage going back to the beginning, where masculinity was defined in more biblical terms, and and where the material uh, situation was also m- more conducive to men um, fulfilling a more biblical view. For example. You have to go back to the Industrial Revolution, you know, for, for, to really understand this, you have to go back a bit in history and see you know, where these ideas come from. So prior to the Industrial Revolution, men worked at home alongside their wives and children. And uh, so they were, they were with people they loved and had a moral bond with all day. And so the cultural construct of masculinity was much more geared towards caretaking, responsibility for the whole, you know, the whole house, household, the whole family. In fact, the, a common phrase at the time was that you're not just a father of your family, but you're a father of the community. So the, uh, the, the emphasis was on duty and service and caretaking. And when the Industrial Revolution happened, of course, that took work out of the home. And for the first time in American history, men are no longer working alongside people they love and have a bond with. Instead, they're working as individuals in competition with other men. And that's actually where you start to see the rhetoric change, the language describing men. It was a protest. People didn't like the changes they were seeing because, as you can imagine, you know, being out in competition with other men, they... The the complaint was that men were becoming more egotistical and competitive and aggressive and self-interested. And this is when some of the negative language starts. It, and it becomes even worse as the, as the public square becomes secularized, right? As uh, with the Industrial Revolution, there also develops a large public square, business and industry and factories and banks and academia. And people began to say that the public square should be Value free; it should be run by scientific principles, which they interpreted as value free, uh, and and therefore secular. Well, as again, men are working in that more secularized arena, the biblical moral guidelines, you know, they they don't pay as much attention to; they're not as committed to, and so a secular script for masculinity also develops. So the more negative terms that we, you know, that we. Here, so often today, the origin were both both in the industrial revolution and in the secularizing of society, so that secular views became dominant. Let, let me give you just one um, uh, turning point. This this was an important one: the rise of Darwinian evolution. So Darwin's theory said, right, you are basically a beast at heart. You know, our essential nature is not the image of God. Our essential nature is that we're animals in the struggle for survival. And so secular, so so Darwinian thinkers actually began to say, well, the men that we have today are the men who won out in the struggle for existence. And so they will be the men who are rugged, ruthless, brutal, and even predatory. (laughs) And this like a barbarian, savage, this kind of language entered into our vocabulary and our descriptions of men. Um, instead of instead of asking men to live up to their spiritual and moral d- ideals, the idea was you you find your true identity living down to the animal nature. You know, the, civilization is just a thin veneer. You know, over the beast within. So the secular definition of masculinity became much more negative after the rise of Darwinian theory. Um, and by the way. Uh, here in america um the person who did the most to popularize darwinism was was a sociologist named herbert spencer and and herbert spencer said well how do how do women get along with such brutal men and he said well they had to develop the ability to please the ability to please and then he added it would also help if they learn how to hide their distress at such poor treatment <laughs> so that's that's the message of evolution. Men are brutal beasts, and women need to hide their resentment at being so poorly treated. So, so these kind of ideas entered into the secular mainstream, and understanding where it came from can give us a better idea of how we can respond. So
1: true. I mean, we should reaffirm those places where men find out what is really required of them and discard those that don't. I mean, that is just sounds like it's smart. Right? <laughs>
2: yeah, I kind of um, through the, through the book, I kind of take that that early um, study, the one that said what's the good man and what's the real man. I kind of use that throughout the book and say, well, where does the good man ideas come from, and how can we enforce those? And yeah, how can we help men, you know, f- connect with their own inner sense of what it means to be a good man, and how do we help them to recognize the quote unquote real man, which is more this the secular script for masculinity you know how, how can we help them to see where that's coming from and how they can choose not to fulfill the secular definition in, in order to you know to to be more to be more oh, i keep coming back to your words i love the way you started this program the image of god you know so they can fulfill the image of god
1: well, and then, uh, I suppose the Darwinian aspect of it, vis a vis the image of God is the survival of the fittest, right? So that's where we get, that's where we get that sort of the clubbing over the heads of whatever, you know, ah, I'm going to go get stuff. I'm going to kill things and break stuff and whatever. I suppose that's what that was alluding to in some form or fashion by the Darwinians.
2: Yeah. And, um, another thing I wanted to understand was why, why the um, message of <laughs> connected with feminism has gotten so negative, you know, like we started out with some examples of of quotes from feminists saying you know um from feminists saying that no good men you know kill all men and so on. where did that come from? Well, that came from the uh the nineteenth century when uh, as I mentioned, after the industrial revolution, when men were no longer in the home um the, the The language began to change, and part of that is because men's behavior was growing worse. In other words, um, especially young men. Young men were coming in from the countryside. They were being separated from the traditional authority structures, accountability structures like family and church and village. They were coming into the cities and falling prey to drinking, gambling, (laughs) prostitution, fighting, gangs, (laughs)
1: Easier life. yeah.
2: Urban, well, urban life, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, here's, here's a fact. Sometimes it's easier if you have a single fact to hang your hat on. In 1830, <laughs> Americans drank three times as much as they do today. Oh, so, really? So drinking was actually a big problem. There's a reason there was yes, a temperance movement. There was movement. a temperance yeah <laughs>
1: Yes, that's right. I think so, I've heard you say that before, in, yes. In
2: response to this, there was, in fact, the 19th century had a whole host of, of, of reform movements. It's... it's, um best known for the, the the era of reform movements because reform movements uh, began to address drinking, gambling, fighting, prostitution, sex trafficking, and so on. And many of these reform movements were, were actually um, people by uh, women. They were driven by women because, of course, women didn't have jobs back then. <laughs> so they would come out and say, well, it's it's up to women to try to reform society then. And this was also a period when, for the first time ever, women were said to be morally superior. Oh, really? And that, that was a new one. For, <laughs> that was a new one for me. Ever since the ancient Greeks and Romans, it has been assumed that men were morally and spiritually superior. The idea was that the insight into right and wrong is a rational insight, and men are more rational, and therefore men are more moral. They're stronger morally and spiritually. That was the assumption for centuries. In fact, the word virtue, did you know what the root of the word virtue is? V-I-R. V-I-R means man in Latin. Does it? Like the word virile. Think of the word virile. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yes. (laughs) I love that. The root of the word virtue, actually, it, it had connotations of manly strength and honor. Yeah. So it was thought that men were more virtuous than women. Up until the 19th century. So this was a huge change that for the first time ever that we know of in American, not just American history, but human history, for the first time, women were said to be morally superior. Why did that happen? Because men were out in the public arena, which was becoming secularized, and they were losing touch with biblical morality. Well, of course, people will, still wanted to respect and put, and protect values. You know, if the public square is supposed to be value-free, where do we protect values? Well, in the home. And who's in the home? Well, women were still in the home at that time. And so values got connected more with women, and women were said to be the moral guardians of society. This was totally new. This had never happened before. And but but women, uh, in a, that's why women were so much uh central to the reform movements of the 19th century because they had been given is, in a sense is the, the task of the moral guardians now of society. Well, unfortunately, that created a lot of tension between men and women <laughs> because if women were out there saying, here's you know, you guys are not living up to standards, that creates a lot of resentment. And it also, uh, if virtue is defined as, as feminine. Then of course, you know, men don't want to be a feminist. So virtue seems to be something that they want to, you know, they want to avoid being virtuous because now virtue is associated with women. So a a lot of the tension we see in feminism today is women saying, "Hey, you need, you know, the Me Too movement, right?" It's women bringing a moral moral judgment against men. Now, I'm not saying that you know, a lot of times the, the judgment was true, but that pattern of women being in a sense the conscience of men. Was set up in the 19th century, and so th- that's the origin of a lot of this tension between the sexes that we see today.
1: That's stasis—it's interesting. I have I, to I ask you something. So, uh, I think the very essence of manhood is being, in, you know, questioned here uh, in terms of, you know, sort of discarding men as having to- toxic masculinity. The very essence of who they are is um, is being. Uh, just thrown out the window, basically. And I and I wonder if it's because of, um, you know, to what extent does it have, rely on biological uh, differences? And um, I'm reminded of the shooter in Nashville in which this woman who was passing as a man con- conducted, I think it's a second mass shooting by a woman. The other one was in San Diego, I think in the 90s. Error of the eighties, and uh, she she was having a bad day, and it was a, she was having a Monday, which is where that expression comes from. And so, long tail on that kite. But uh, is it a testosterone thing that we've now decided that we're going to discard in in society? Yeah, because uh, I think th- I think that trans uh-huh. chick was was probably high on testosterone.
2: Yes, too. Uh, yes, almost certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, she was she was transitioning, so she was almost certainly on testosterone. Yes, one of the things that I I do address in in the toxic war on masculinity is, let's start with the basics. Let's start with biology. You know, what are the differences between men and women? Because I don't know if you've run into this, but I run into feminists who say, well, if women would just work out, they'd be as strong as men. No, <laughs> no, they will not be. Um, because of testosterone, men are bigger, stronger, faster. they have more fast twitch muscles. I had to learn that word. That means they can react more quickly. Ah, I believe that. That's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and they have seventy five percent more upper body muscle mass, ninety percent more upper body strength, and if if we don't acknowledge that, then we won't put moral restraints on it. And I think that's the issue: is that it, we have to acknowledge what men have in order to interpret it in a moral sense. You know, like the APA, which says, oh, you know, masculine strength is bad. And we say, wait a minute, you needed masculine strength to stop the shooters. So masculine strength is good when it's used to provide and protect. Um, And women, but we have to make sure that we don't always state it in terms of where men are better. Women are better in some things, too. It's a great honor to be able to bear life. You know, to bring new life into the world. Big thing. It's, it's, kind of a big thing. It's huge. <laughs> and it takes up a lot of our, uh, t- you know, an adult woman's life is a lot of it is usually spent. Most women do end up being mothers at some point in their life. But think of the think of the character traits that it takes to be a good mother. You know, you have to be willing to be uh, interrupted any time of the day with an infant. <laughs> um at three o'clock in the morning, when the baby wakes up sc- screaming because he's hungry, you know you can't say, "Well, I don't feel like doing that right now." <laughs> you have to be willing to meet somebody else's need. You need to be incredibly sensitive and empathetic. You need to be able to interpret nonverbal cues because they don't speak yet. <laughs> there's a, there's a whole host of psychological strengths. These are strengths that women have. So if we can state it in terms of yes, men have more muscular strength women have these other kinds of strength, you know, make sure that we're always stating it that way. That way it comes across as, well, we, you know, we have these complementary strengths and which is why we work together well.
1: So you're, you're talking about how men are stronger than women, just in general, physically strong. How come they keep trying to medicate boy behavior from out of kids?
2: Oh yeah. It's because, because so many elementary school teachers are women and they don't know how to deal with boys. (laughs) I think, you know, once you have boys, you really see this. You, know, uh, I saw this in one of my own sons when school. You know, the, the, obviously, uh, any psychologist will tell you girls are better at verbal skills at a younger age, and they're better at sitting still and doing fine motor control, like coloring and using scissors. They are better at those things, and schools are organized for, for girls' strengths. Uh, one psychologist put it this way. The girls are treated as the gold standard, and boys are treated as defective girls. So we do need to look at our education system. And unfortunately, anytime somebody says, well, maybe we should, in fact, have some special programs for boys, uh, feminist groups immediately counter that. It's very, very hard to get any special programs for boys, no matter how much people are starting to acknowledge that boys need more help. You're seeing more articles in the news, for example, today, that boys do need more help. Uh, they're falling behind. And uh, it, it is. It's, it's becoming more widely recognized that boys are falling behind. But anytime time you try to get a special program geared towards boys, uh, there's incredible opposition and, and in one sense, you can understand that women were not even allowed to attend university until the mid twentieth century. A lot of our major universities didn't accept women until the mid twentieth century. That's pretty recent. <laughs> and so there have been uh, there's been an incredible amount of money poured into programs for girls and trying to encourage girls. And that that while well, that money, time, and effort is paying off, but now we need to shift and say, well, but. Our boys are falling behind, and that's not good for either of them because if girls are getting ahead, let's, let's, let's take uh, educa- uh, college, for example. If it's 60-40, 60% female and 40% male, who are those women going to pair up with for marriage? They're, you know, They're not going to find people who have common interests and common educational attainment as themselves. So that's not good for women either. So it's in our own interest to help men get ahead and and not not fall behind the way they currently are there are places now where if you're single and childless women now make more th- more than men in many of the major cities women make more you know they earn more than that that pay gap is gone <laughs> the pay gap you know the pay gap starts when you're a mother it's not a male female thing it's a mother thing <laughs> once you have kids most women do want to cut back on their on their paid employment Outside the home, because they want to, they want to be mothers. They, they they want to be engaged with their kids. They they want to have close relationships with their kids. So the pay gap always was more of a mother gap than a female male female gap. And now, in fact, single childless women in m- major cities are earning out out earning males in the same position. You know, single and childless.
1: We're trying to we're trying to uh, stamp out males um you know testosterone's gone down 10 to 40% in young men we've got obesity which suppresses testosterone we've got uh, marijuana use on a daily basis i imagine that uh, porn is not helping there are all kinds of social ills that have befallen the male uh, the male portion of the the species and this is all not helping helping um men be the best men they can be and testosterone levels reducing is a frightening thing. It is, isn't it? Um,
2: and when men suffer, women suffer. You know, our, our faiths are connected to one another. And that's what I keep trying to get across to. to I have to tell you, um, even teaching in a Christian college, I, have, I have found that this book is, is controversial uh, because my female students are mostly identify as feminists. And if I say anything positive about men, they they get triggered. They immediately get triggered. If I if I say something is you know like well men are strong, well women are strong too. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> they are. Um, I can't say anything positive about men without my female students getting triggered. And then the other side of it is, um, so my, my male students feel beaten down and um, demeaned and defeated. So I announced to my class that I was writing a book on masculinity and one of my male students shot back immediately, "What masculinity? It's been beaten out of us." <laughs> oh, this is this is what I'm up against in in this in writing this book. Uh, Victoria, I had to rewrite chapter 1 multiple times cuz I had to get over that barrier. I had to get over the barrier of people on both sides thinking, you know, this book is this book is going to be polemical, it's going to take sides. Well, yeah, it's polemical, but it's for a biblical view. <laughs> it's not on either side of the culture war so much. I had to almost plead with my readers to be objective. You know, you know Christianity says <laughs> we're, you know Christianity says we are of we're in the world, but not of the world. You know, we're supposed to be able to handle these things objectively. And so um I, I, I it, it was fascinating to uh, uh, both in my um in my classroom. But also, I I always send my book out to expert reviewers, you know, to to get their feedback, and I had the same divide there. I had you know my very conservative readers who who who, who sometimes thought I wasn't adequately you know leading the charge for men, and then. Because I do, you know, you do have to acknowledge the Me Too movement had some valid complaints. Sure, <laughs> and, and and the Church Too movement <laughs> followed that, right? The Church move. I don't know. Some people haven't heard that term, but the Church Too movement was well. What about abuse in in the Christian world? Did not and, know about that. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. So some so superstar pastors like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek. Yeah, and then the apologist Ravi Ravi Zacharias. You know, we've had some high profile people who who have, in fact. Um, you have credible charges of sexual yes. abuse against them, God. and 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 and, uh, and by the way, when I when I, earlier we talked about how nominal Christian men actually are test out as worse than secular men in terms of domestic violence. So of course I have to deal with that in the book. If I if sure. I don't, it'll look like I'm just you know sweeping under the carpet. Sure. So I do have two chapters in in the book on you know what's a biblical approach to abuse and violence in the home you know what 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 happens what happens when we do
1: you're very you are very concerned about that and you you have some ways in which you believe uh this should be addressed in christian homes and i you know it's sad that we have to to have that but uh you know help for that because it's not supposed to be there It's it's a mutual respect kind of a thing but not so not so nancy
2: well, the the thing is, we have to keep coming back to the fact that it's mostly nominal Christian men. So, in other words, it's men who have, um, who do not have a biblical definition of headship in the home, but have incorporated secular views of masculinity. And so, and that's why I have to spend a lot of time on, well, where did those secular views come from? Because they're not just secular men holding them. They're also Christian men who hold them because... You know, I mean, we're we're products of our culture. We're all products of our culture to some degree, right? And so, it's it's incumbent upon Christians to reach out to men who are sort of on the fringes like this. And how do we help them understand what a biblical view is of marriage and masculinity and fatherhood? Fatherhood. We haven't talked about that yet. I have a couple chapters on that because we all know that today in the in the in pop culture, fathers are ridiculed and mocked and treated as the butt of the joke all the time. And so no wonder the number of men who are heading out, you know, um, who are leaving their children behind. It's 40%. 40% of children in America do not live with their natural father, which is the highest level in the world. I mean, isn't that a great thing to be the best of? you know Wow. We're number one. Of, <laughs> Number one in single parenthood in the world. And so, but even there, you have to ask where did that come from? Again, it's back to the Industrial Revolution. When men first started leaving the home, you know, they were no longer working on the family farm or in the family industry, they were out of the home all day. You see, Im- almost immediately, the literature of the time begins to say, oh, what's happening to our fathers? They're not connected to their families anymore. Um, they're, you know, they're showing up on the weekends. You know, we're not really—they're not integrated into the family throughout the week like they used to be. And you already in the 19th century, you start to see people saying, "Well, our, our our fathers are no longer, you know, on top of what's happening in their own families. They're out of touch with their own children, with their children's needs, and the sort of the family dynamics." And you start to see already men being treated as if they're irrelevant. And incompetent, you know, they're incompetent as parents because because they're just not there enough to know what their children's needs are. So th- that too has very deep roots. You know, How when we talk about, you know, how can we help our pop culture not be so negative to fathers? Well, we have to realize where it came from. It did come from the fact that uh, men were not home as much as they used to be. So, And of course, you can't say that without having at least a chapter on solutions
1: you know you yeah, have to I was have some... say where do we go from here
2: yeah so i do have a chapter on solutions and you know, most men really in in surveys most men say they want more time with their family uh, it's not just mothers who feel you know the the work life tension it's fathers who express just as high level of work life tension and you know ever since the industrial revolution what gets in the way of their family uh, f- the family relationships what they say in surveys it's my work and so I have a lot of examples of men who found ways to get more flexibility in their work, you know, to have to work two days out of the week from home or to leave. I, I had a, uh, a man who just left work at 4.30 two days a week to, um, to be the coach for his son's soccer and, ba- and basketball teams. Or um, the, the pandemic, the pandemic actually helped. There, there was a, an article in the New York Times of all places not too long ago. It's not in my book because it's very recent, but in the New York Times, it was the headline was something like, "The pen- it, during the pandemic, many fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. I thought, isn't that cool? And so, so, I, and so I, I have a lot of stories. During the pandemic, one of my graduate students, uh, her husband was an IT worker and he came home during the pandemic and because he was home, he was able to be more involved in the homeschooling that they were doing. He was able to he 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 picked up lunch. You know, he was gonna make he makes lunch every day now, and he takes the kids to the soccer practice, and you know he he was so much more involved with the family responsibilities that his wife, who his wife's an opera singer, I I had a student who was an opera singer. <laughs> So his, his wife was able to start a, a voice studio and so the whole family's benefiting benefiting from the added income and, and oh and the the final the final uh, touch is the the time that he used to spend commuting to work in the morning he now spends praying with his, with his wife and so when i interviewed him he said i'm never going back to a cubicle our life is so much more balanced now than it used to be so in I do have a whole chapter giving stories like that because uh, right now it's more of an anecdotal level, you know, just giving people ideas. What, what could you maybe do in your circumstance to maybe f- have a little bit of flexibility? Surveys of millennials say uh, they, they want more balance. You know, th- they would prefer if they could, you know, if both parents could work part time and be home part time, you know, share a job, um, sh- share the, the bread winning role so that the fathers could have more time with their kids. Unfortunately, the workplace is not really geared toward that. But that's what most people actually
1: aspire to, according to the um, surveys. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we have Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary and uh, former, uh, you know, the, the Fed's chair and all that stuff she's uh, been there at the top of the heap for so long and encourages women to have abortions so they can get right back out there into the in the workplace and you've got people who are very concerned about the fact that uh, commercial office space is uh, going wanting why because people are back home because of the pandemic and uh, so as not to allow that to the demise of that part of the economy. My guess is they're so in love with telling people what to do now. They being the government and all different bureaucracies that I don't doubt for one second, they, they would try to demand people go back to the office because, um, because they don't want that part of the economy to crash. Everything else is crashing.
2: Some, some workplaces are demanding it, but um Workers are demanding the opposite. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one study that I did get into my book. It came out before it was published. Um, Sixty-five percent of men said that they wanted to be able to keep at least part-time work from home. Still, at least part of their job, Uh, they wanted to keep. Sixty-five percent of men said they wanted to work at least part-time from home, and this was the interesting part. It said. The way was led by college-educated fathers. I'm not sure what that means, but, you know, what significance that has. But they found that it was especially among those who were better educated, who wanted time, more time at home with their kids. So I, I thought that the pandemic, I mean, it had a lot of bad, there's, it's good to find at least one silver lining. <laughs> the, the one silver lining is that a lot of families did find that they were they were closer to, after the pandemic when... Um, you know, if they adapted well to teaching their kids at home and working from home, um, m- many of them found that the trade-off was that the family relationships were stronger. You talk about um, Janet Yellen. Have you seen? There's a new book by uh, Mary Harrington uh, called "Feminism Against Progress," and she's she was a former left- leftist, very liberal, and uh, she had her. It was her first baby that changed her. So once I had a baby, I realized, wait a minute, Uh, relationships matter. You know, uh, there's no relationship closer than a baby that's growing inside your own body, and then even after it's born, you know, it's it's totally dependent on you for you know for for nursing for all of its nourishment. It makes you rethink the whole story of you know, uh, sort of the social contract theory of we're all just autonomous selves running around in a state of nature, no, we're not. <laughs> you know, we, Relationships are intrinsic to who we are. We're not intrinsically autonomous, independent selves. We are embedded in relationships and most importantly, you know, the family relationships, and that's intrinsic to our identity.
1: Lives are not modular. Lives are relational. You now you can't just plug and play and one person comes in and then you plug them into that part and and uh, hope to have a fully functioning family. You just can't do it that way. Nancy Piercy, once again, shows us how, shows us what the issues are and how to get through it. And we really appreciate it. The book, of course, is The Toxic War on Masculinity. And Professor Nancy Piercy, just always pleasure to spend some time with you to learn a little bit more about our human family. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. How can people get in contact with you? Oh, I am now in the process of, of uh, creating a new website. So NancyPeercy.com. Oh. Uh, you can still go to the old one, but we're updating it with bells and whistles. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, you can buy the book on um, Amazon, ChristianBook.com, whatever your favorite book site is. Uh, it's, it's available at all bookstores.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, Mischief Managed.